Several years ago, a well-known Southern Baptist wrote a book, and the title of the book was Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And though I strongly endorse the book, I think it's a great book to read, the title of the book confused a lot of people. Some people thought that, that the book was saying that, that we shouldn't ask Jesus into our heart. We shouldn't encourage people to pray the sinner's prayer. Uh, other people thought that the book was saying that we shouldn't ask Jesus into our heart. We shouldn't give him our heart altogether. But that's not what the book was saying. The book was saying that, that it's not enough to pray a simple prayer. It's not enough to utter some, some words. Simply saying, Jesus come into my heart will not save you unless you give Jesus your heart. You see, Jesus wants your heart. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. I remember vividly as a nine-year-old boy, for the very first time sitting in church, coming under the conviction of my sin. At the end of the service, I went forward and, and I prayed a prayer and I literally asked Jesus into my heart. And he came into my heart. And he changed everything about me. There were three things involved in that decision I made that morning. First of all, I realized my sin. I realized my rebellion against God. I realized I had disobeyed God. And I was sorry for that sin. I no longer wanted to live under the power of sin. Second, I trusted Jesus to save me. I believe with all my heart that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And I believe that he was my only hope that I needed to place my trust in him to be saved. And then third, as best I knew how, as a nine-year-old boy, I gave Jesus my life. I didn't understand all that that entailed. I didn't know all that that meant. But I knew that I wanted Jesus to come into my life and take control. And I am convinced he did. I am convinced that when I gave my heart to Jesus, Jesus came into my heart, and Jesus changed my heart forever. Now, the key truth I want you to get this morning is this. God wants your heart, not the organ that is beating in your chest, not that place from which all your emotions flow. God wants your heart. God wants the very center of your being. This is what Solomon said in, in Proverbs 4. He said, above all, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The New Living Translation says it this way, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Everything, absolutely everything flows from our heart. Jesus said it this way. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Then he went on to say this. It's not what goes into the body that defiles the body, but it's what comes from the heart. Now understand, God wants your mind. He warns us to, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God wants our body. God commands us to present our bodies, living sacrifices to God. But the truth of the matter is, if God has our heart, 
God has our mind. And if God has our heart, God has our body. Now this morning, we're moving from Saul, the first king of Israel, a, a carnal king, to, Saul, to David, the second king of Israel, who was a godly king. Now beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 13, it's apparent that the story of Saul continues, but yet at the same time, David becomes the central figure. The first hint that Israel is about to receive a new king is found in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Saul had, had just disobeyed God. He had taken matters into his own hand, and he had presented a sacrifice to God himself instead of waiting for Samuel. And it says this in verse 14. It says, but now your kingdom, Saul, must end. For the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. And don't miss what it says here. God sought a man after his own heart. A heart that beat like God's heart. God sought for a man whose heart longed for the things that God's heart longed for. A little bit later on in, in chapter 16, we see God commanding Samuel to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse and anoint the new king. And so Samuel obeyed, and he went to Bethlehem, and he went to the house of Jesse. And when he got there, he saw Jesse's son Eliab, and, and when he saw him, he said, surely the Lord wants me to anoint this man as the king. But this is what it says in chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord doesn't look at things the way you look at things. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, don't miss what it is saying right there. Man looks at the outward appearance. Man sees things the way man can see things. But God looks inside. God looks deep within at our heart. We are told in verse 13 of chapter 16 that the Spirit of God came powerfully upon David at that time and stayed with David. And yet at the same time, we are told that the Spirit of God left Saul and a tormenting spirit came upon Saul. A, a spirit that, that brought fear, a spirit that brought depression, a spirit that brought anxiety. But God brought David into Saul's life and David was a musician and David came and he he played the harp and when David played the harp this soothing music eased that torment that was in Saul's spirit and that tormented spirit left and don't miss this I believe one of the greatest things that you can do when you are overwhelmed with depression when you are overwhelmed with discouragement is to fill your mind and to fill your heart with praise music. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you if you're experiencing depression today to not see a doctor. I'm not telling you that. But what I am telling you is this. One of the greatest things that you can do that will ever overcome depression and anxiety and these thoughtless, restless spirits that come into your mind is to fill your mind with the praises of God. David did that. He did that personally. 
In Psalm 13, David is in a pit, and he says, How long, O God, will you forget me forever? How long will you turn your back on me till I sleep the sleep of death? But then David turned his attention and his affection back to God. And one of the things he said is, Yet I will sing praises to your name forever. And that changed everything. In chapter 17, we we see that the nation of Israel is at war with the Philistines. And and the Philistines had this, this giant of a warrior named Goliath. He was over nine feet tall. Some of Um, If the people today say that that could never happen, that's a fairy tale, that's a fantasy. But in 1940, the tallest man who ever lived in modern history died. His name was Robert Wadlow, and when he died, he was 8 feet 11 inches tall. That's in 1940. So don't tell me when the Bible says that there was this giant warrior named Saul, who was over nine feet tall, that that couldn't happen. And so here was Goliath, and and he was in this valley of Elan, and the entire Israelite army was afraid. They were terrified of Goliath. But when David saw him, he was offended by the things that Goliath was saying about God. And so David went into that, that valley, and he fought Goliath. And this is what David said. He said, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, whom you have defiled. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and I will cut off your head, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. And that's exactly what happened. God defeated Goliath through David. And God defeated the entire Philistine army through David. And because of that victory and many other victories, the women in Israel began to sing a song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And that song, that song made Saul extremely angry and jealous. And and from that time on, Saul tried to kill David. And because of that, David went into hiding, and he was on the run from Saul. And the thing that you need to understand during this period in history is this. Even though Saul was trying to kill David, David refused to harm Saul. Even though he had multiple opportunities, he refused to lay his hands on Saul. This is what David said. David said, the Lord forbid that I should kill the one God has anointed. You see, even though David had already been anointed king by Samuel, even though David knew that one day he would sit on the throne that Saul was presently sitting on, he refused to lay his hands on Saul because he trusted that God would fulfill his promise in his time and in his way. Now when we come to the end of 1 Samuel, We see a battle raging between Israel and the Philistines and Saul. And three of his sons are killed. And after that, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel that that the people of Judah anointed David their king. And for seven and a half years, David ruled over Judah as their king. Now during this time, Israel had their own king. 
they anointed Ishbosheth, who was Saul's remaining son, to be their king. But when he was assassinated by some of his closest advisors, the people of Israel made David their king as well. And the Bible tells us that David began ruling when he was 30 years old, and he ruled over Judah and Israel for 40 years. Now, I want you to remember something. The Bible tells us at the very beginning, when we begin to hear about David and we're told about David, that David had the kind of heart that God was looking for, right? God was looking for a man after his own heart. God said that, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And yet, even though David had a heart that beat with God's heart, even though David's heart longed for the things that God's heart longed for, David's heart didn't keep him from at times making terrible, sinful decisions. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David had a desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Where, where the kingdom now was being established. He wanted the ark to be there because the ark was the, the symbol of the power and the presence of God. It, it was a central focus of worship to Yahweh, their, their God. And, and so David began to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, but he was doing it in the wrong way. And because of that, a man died. He disobeyed God. He did it his way rather than God's way, and a man died. Sounds a lot like what Saul did, doesn't it? A little bit later on, we are told that the kings had gone off to war, but David had stayed home. And one day he was on the roof of his palace, and, and he noticed on, on another building a beautiful lady taking a bath. Obviously she was naked. And David began to lust after her. And he got someone to find out who she was, and then he sent for her, and he had sex with her. He sent her back home, and he thought his one-night stand, his one-time fling was over, but it wasn't over because the woman got pregnant. He tried to cover up his sin by, by bringing her husband back from battle so that he would sleep with her, but, but he was a, a man who was loyal to David, he was loyal to the other people who were fighting on the battlefield, and he refused to sleep with his wife. And so David had her husband killed in battle. Then he brought her to himself, to himself, and married her to try to cover up this sin. Now, a little bit later on, David confessed his sin. He repented of his sin. He was truly sorry for his sin. And yet, that didn't keep him from experiencing the devastating consequences of his sin. We see because of that one act, that one event, that the son that was conceived from this act died. And we begin to see a, a series of events that took place. We see a daughter of David raped by her half-brother. We see the brother of that daughter kill his half-brother. We see that brother, Absalom, try to steal the throne from his father. We see later on another son try to steal the throne. Now here's what you need to understand. I want you to listen very carefully. Even though when we repent 
and we ask for God's forgiveness, it removes the eternal consequences for our sin. It doesn't necessarily remove the temporal consequences of our sin. You see, our sins here on this earth, even though they may be forgiven in heaven, can still have consequences here on this earth. And David experienced these consequences. Finally, toward the end of, of David's reign, in a moment of pride, he wanted to take a census. Now you say, what was wrong with this? Well, David, God had told David not to do it. And so he was disobeying God. And because of this sin, 70,000 people died in three days. Now I've got to be honest with you. When I look at Saul's life over here and the things that he did wrong, and I look at David's life over here and the things that he did wrong, David looks far worse to me than Saul did. I, I don't read about David or, or Saul committing adultery. I read about that with David. I don't read about Saul having someone killed, but I read about that with David. And I read about a number of other things that David did, and yet, and yet in Scripture, Saul is the one who is carnal. And David is the one who is godly. Now, how is that? How can that be? Well, here's the bottom line. On the surface, Saul's sins may have paled in comparison to David's, but God looks below the surface. God looks at the heart of all the truths that we are going to learn this summer. None are more important than this. It's all about the heart. Your mind can know all the facts and the truths that are found in Scripture. But if your heart is wrong, your life is going to be wrong. You can keep your body pure and free from sin. But if your heart is not right with God, then nothing else matters. And nothing absolutely nothing gives us a look into the heart of David like the Psalms. That, that word heart is found over 120 times in this book of songs that David writes. You see, the Psalms give us a look into the heart of David, a heart that has a desire to please God. David's desire from start to finish was to please God. And though there were times that he failed miserably, his heart's desire was always to please God. In Psalm 19, verse 14, David said this. He said, may the words of my heart, the meditation, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David's desire more than anything else that, that was that everything that flowed from his heart would be pleasing to God. That's why he prayed in Psalms 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. God, look deep within. I don't just want you to, 
to explore my mind and see what I know. I don't just want you to look at my life and see how I live. God, I want you to search my heart because my desire is that my heart will be fully and completely devoted to you. And so, what does a heart look like that desires to please God? Well, there's a number of things that we could, we could focus on, but what I want to do is give you five things that I believe are clearly revealed in the psalm. Five things that reveal why David's heart was a heart that pleased God. David's heart was a heart that, that longed after God. David's heart was the kind of heart that God is looking for. The first thing is this, a heart that, that pleases God is a heart that trusts God completely. L listen to what it says in Psalm 28, verse 7. The Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with all my heart. David trusted God completely. He trusted him with the, the here and now, and he trusted him with the hereafter. The Hebrew word translated trust here literally means confidence. It means security. David not only believed with his mind that God would take care of him, David lived confidently knowing that God would take care of him. He trusted him in, in the valley of Elah when he was facing that giant Goliath. He trusted him when he was on the run for his life, hiding from Saul. He trusted him in the midst of his sin, even when his infant son died because of his sin. He trusted God when he came to the end of his life and he was facing eternity at every stage of David's life David trusted God completely now listen very carefully trust doesn't mean the absence of fear trust doesn't mean the absence of doubt what trust means is this it means that even when our fears and our doubts come we move forward trusting having complete confidence in God it means we refuse to be handcuffed, we refuse to be stifled, we refuse to be stopped by our fears or by our doubts. I can remember vividly being five years old. It's one of my first memories that, that I remember apart from my mom and dad telling me things. And I remember being at Santee at my aunt's house and she had a pier there on, on one of the lakes and my dad was, was there and and I was on the end of the pier. My dad was trying to teach me at five years old to swim. And he was out in the lake, and I was on the end of the pier. And, and he would say, jump to me, son. I was five years old. That water was over my head. I couldn't see the bottom. It was murky. It was dark. But I knew something. I knew that my dad could touch the bottom. I knew that my dad loved me, and I knew that my dad wouldn't let anything happen to me. So I jumped in, and the first time I jumped in, I jumped right to him, and he caught me, and that was good, that was great. But then he put me back on the pier, and he said, jump to me again. But this time, he backed up a little bit, 
And of course, I wanted him to come closer. But he said, no, trust me. I've got you. Trust me. And so I jumped in and I started kicking with my feet and, and moving my arms. And, and eventually I got to where he was. And I got to him and he grabbed me and he hugged me and he told me, great job. And then he took me to the pier and he put me on the edge of the pier and he backed up some more. And he said, jump to me. And that day at five years old, I learned to swim. And from that point on, I have absolutely loved the water. Now, the reason that I love the water and I enjoy swimming is because I trusted my dad to take care of me, even though I was afraid of what was there. You see, trust isn't the absence of fear. Trust isn't the absence of doubt. Trust is jumping off the end of the pier, knowing that the one who is there in the water is strong enough to catch you and take care of you. And understand we're called to trust God not only for our salvation, because that's where a lot of us end it. We are called to trust God with our life as we are walking through life. I don't want to overuse an illustration, but I've got, I've got to. One of the reasons that my wife and I were able to make it through, I believe, so easily, the death of our son last year is because we trusted God. We knew that God loved us. We knew that God cared for us. And we knew that God was in control. He was on his throne. And that didn't take away the pain. It didn't take away hurt. But we could trust him. In the midst of not knowing, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of hurt, we could trust God. And that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to trust him. In Psalm 20, verse 7, David said this, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Here's what I know. Everyone here is trusting in something or someone. The question is, who or what are you trusting in? Some of you are trusting in your own abilities in this life and for the next. Some of you are trusting in someone else's abilities, a relative, a friend, a boss pastor but David said we trust in the Lord so a heart that pleases God is a heart that trusts God completely secondly a heart that pleases God is a heart that worships God passionately in Psalm 86 verse 12 it says with all my heart I will praise you O Lord my God I will give glory to your name forever now one of the clearest examples of David worshiping God is found in the story of David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and though he did it wrong the first time he got it right the second time and when he came to Jerusalem with the ark worshiping God the Bible tells us that he was dancing with all of his might before God there were tambourines and other instruments being played. People were shouting with shouts of joy. There was music. There was dancing. It was a celebration. And David 
the king was right there in the midst of it, worshiping with all his heart. I love Warren Wiersbe's definition of worship. I believe it's one of the best that I've ever seen. He says that worship is this. Worship is the believer's response with all that he is, his mind, his emotions, his will, his body, to all that God is, says, and does. And we see that in David. David worshipped God with all he had. He worshipped him with his mind. He worshipped him with his body. He worshipped him with his emotions. He worshipped him with his will as he, he surrendered and gave back. We see David worshipping when he had a desire to build God a temple. God told him, no, your son is going to be the one who builds the temple. But in the last chapter of the book of 1 Chronicles, we see David making this statement. He says, today I give all my personal treasures to the building of this temple. His giving was an act of worship. We see his worship as he wrote the Psalms, as, as he was by himself in caves, as he was on the run from Saul, and yet all alone he would worship God. You see, our worship is to be something that is private between us and God, and our worship is to be something that is public with other people. And here's what I know. Most of us who come to church, we're okay with our public worship. We come and, and we stand and we sing the songs, at least some of us do. Some of us get a little wild and, and try to raise our hand. I mean, you know, we, we, we worship, we, we do that, and we come together on Sunday and we worship. But here's what I know. Our worship on Sunday, what we do in public, is really meaningless, and it is powerless. If it is not powered by what we do Monday through Saturday in worship. You see, it is our Monday through Saturday worship that prepares us for our corporate worship on Sunday. Are you with me? Amen. Are you tracking? Let me tell you, if you have a hard time worshiping on Sunday, it may be because you're not worshiping on Saturday, Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, and Monday. If you're worshiping during those times in private, through reading the Word, through praying, through praising His name, through song, let me tell you, you're going to come on Sunday and you're going to let loose. David worshiped passionately. Third, a heart that pleases God loves God's Word. Psalms 119.11, David said this, I have hidden your Word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. In verse 111, it says this, Your laws, your words, are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. Did you get that? David said, Your word, your law, your commands, your statutes, your precepts. He uses a lot of different words to describe the same thing. God's word. And he says, your word, God, is the delight of my heart. Now let me ask you a question. Is God's word the delight of your heart? 
Now, it's not going to be shown by how big your Bible is. Years ago, there was a parody song, I like big Bibles and I cannot lie. <laughs> you need to go back and listen to it, it's pretty good. But your love for God's Word isn't based upon how big your Bible is. It's not based upon how many copies of the Bible you have. Your love for God's Word is based on two things. How much time you're spending reading and studying and meditating on God's Word. And then how are you doing at applying and obeying God's Word? I mean, a lot of people get bent out of shape and they say God's Word says this and God's Word says that. And, and it's like we have this selective idea of what God's Word says. But if I love God's Word, I, 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 want, to, I want to devour it. I want His Word to get in me so that His Word can change me. Do you love God's Word? If you love God's Word, you're going to read it. You're going to study it. You're going to meditate on it. If you love God's Word, you're going to seek to do what it says. When you read something and you discover your life is not in keeping with what God's Word says, you're going to seek to make it right. You don't love God's Word if you're disobeying what God's Word says. Fourth, a life that pleases God longs for purity. David said this in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. In Psalm 86, verse 11, David said, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart so that I may honor you. Did you get what he said? He said, God, I want to be pure from the very core of who I am so that my life will honor you. In Psalm 51, David used words like purify, cleanse, wash. David's desire was to live a pure life. So what about you? Do you desire to live a pure life, a clean life, a life that is free from sin? I mean, do you really, really, really long to live your life in a way that is pleasing to God, that is pure before God? Or do you just want a free pass, a free ticket to heaven? And then you want to be able to live however you choose here on this earth. A life that pleases God desires purity at the very center of who we are. And then finally, a life that seeks to please God is broken by sin. Whenever David sinned, the sin would break his heart. We see this most clearly in, in David's sin with Bathsheba. We see it every time, but we see it clearly there. We see when David committed, committed this sin and then killed Uriah, he tried to cover it up. And, and he talks about that in Psalm 51 and then in Psalm 32. And we're told that for a year, we're told, he covered it up. And yet during this period of a year, we are told that he was miserable. We are told that his body was dying. We are told that, that, that he was absolutely in distress and despair 
But then he was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet. And instead of getting angry, instead of getting mad, David confessed his sin. He acknowledged his sin. He admitted his sin. And because of that, God forgave him. Listen very carefully. If you have a heart that desires to please God, and you're confronted with sin in your life, you're not going to get angry. You're not going to get mad. You're not going to get belligerent or defiant. You're going to become repentant. Whatever that sin may be. And I've got to be honest with you. There are times here at, at Northside over the years that, that we as a pastoral staff, we've had to, to in love address people who were caught up in sin. And, and, and tragically, as often as not, instead of humbling themselves and acknowledging I have sinned against God, this has been the attitude. You're not going to tell me what to do. And our reply is, we're not. God is. And if you walk out of here defiantly, rebelling against what God has clearly said, you are in a dangerous place. You see, a heart that desires to please God is going to confess sin and repent of sin. In Psalm 51, verse 17, it says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. Let me ask you a question. And be honest. Has your heart ever been broken over your sin? Not over the consequence of a sin. I got caught. Sitting good. Has your heart ever been broken simply over your sin? Realizing that you have sinned against a loving God. I'm here to tell you, look. I'm here to tell you this morning that if your heart has never been broken over your sin, it doesn't matter what you know, you're probably not saved. The Bible says when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict of sin and of righteousness and the judgment to come. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, we will acknowledge we have sinned against a God who not only created us, but loves us so much that he gave his son to pay the price for our sin. And I got to tell you, when I came to realize that for the first time, my heart was broken. But for those of us here who say, yes, I've been there, can I ask you a question? Another question, is your heart still broken by sin? Here's what happens. We get out of fellowship with God. We get away from God's word. We, we refuse to live in accountable relationships. And all of a sudden, our heart becomes hardened. 
the things that once broke our heart no longer break our heart. A heart that lives to please God will be broken by sin. Here's the final word. Our failures don't define us. How we respond to our failures are what defines us. So tell me, when God looks at your heart, the center of your being, the part that controls everything else, what does he see? Does he see a heart that is living to please God? Or does he see a heart that's living to please self? In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believes and is made righteous, and with the mouth confession is made, that brings salvation. Have you believed with your heart? Have you given your heart to Jesus? In the end, there's going to be a lot of people that stand before God one day who have lived good, moral lives. But they've never given their heart to Jesus. And we're not saved by our morality. We're saved by Jesus. Jesus looks at the heart. Has your heart been changed? I want you to bow your heads. Just close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. I want to remind you, if you look at David's life and Saul's life, on the outside, to be honest with you, David looked far worse. But God didn't look at the outside. God looked at the inside. He looked at David's heart. David had a heart that longed to please God. And because of it, at the end of the day, even though his life was filled with failures, he lived a life that longed to please God. And every time he failed, he would make it right. He would repent. He would respond in the right way and God would forgive them. Not with pride, not with self-righteousness, but he would respond with humility, acknowledging his need, trusting in Jesus. So what about you? Do you have a heart that pleases God, that desires to? If you're here and you've never given your heart to Jesus, then I want to encourage you right here, right now, before we do anything else, if that's your desire to give your heart to Jesus today, to pray this prayer and mean it with every ounce of your being, with all your heart. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive my sin. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to save me. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross, that you rose from the grave so I could be forgiven. Today, I'm trusting you. Come into my heart, Jesus. Come into my life, Jesus, and take control. 
From this moment on, I want to live for you, Jesus. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.